So similar to the US, we do not have a national healthcare program, which is robust. So for many of us who do not have insurance, people who uh, come from low income backgrounds, middle uh, economic backgrounds, this pandemic was the ultimate nightmare, given that we do not have a public healthcare system, which was there to support us. To give an idea of what the situation is like for hospitals in India, we did not have uh, ventilators or oxygen, uh, uh, you know, connected beds. For majority of the population, we were testing the lowest in South Asia for uh, the population that we have. And uh, similar to the United States, again, that it left people in a lurch, completely dependent on their own resources, uh, having to struggle to find beds, having to struggle to find hospitals which would admit patients, and more importantly, struggling uh, to even get tested. So, so to speak, to give an idea of what really happened in the beginning was that there was, of course, massive paranoia. India sort of implemented the strictest lockdowns that we have seen uh, across the globe to lock down 1.2 billion people was huge, but this came at a cost of um, a very crippled uh, healthcare system. We very well knew that we did not have the infrastructure or uh, any kinds of means to provide to the people once the pandemic finally unfolds as we are witnessing right now. Punch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show. Welcome aboard. Hope you found Counterpunch. Hope you're enjoying Counterpunch. Counterpunch depends on you guys. We really do need your support to keep this project going. We've been going for more than 25 years. We plan to do another 25 years at least. And one of the things that we've been talking about here for a couple of weeks now is the move from the print magazine to the subscriber section of the web website. This is a great development for those of us who want to see additional content, including podcasts and other things like that, that can be part of the uh, broad array of things that we do at Counterpunch. So, uh, and 
there are babies in the background that also agree that counterpunch is important. So if you agree with me and if you want to keep counterpunch going, you can get yourself a subscription, give you access to that subscriber section, all of the stuff that I've been talking about. Also, uh, you can follow my work as well, patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. I try to bring as many uh, other issues as I can that we don't discuss here on counterpunch there as well. And one person that I've been lucky enough to follow whose work I really do well, follow every single time it comes through my feed is Sumeda Paul. Sumeda is a very important journalist to follow uh, in India. Uh, she's a journalist with NewsClick, a very important publication there. And uh, I would also just let you know that she has her own experiences with the pandemic that we're living through now that she's probably going to talk about. So uh, Sumeda Paul, welcome back to Counterpunch. Thank you so much, Eric. It's an absolute pleasure to be back and to talk about my experiences as well as uh, the situation here in India. Thank you so much and for the work that you've been doing. So let's just begin there. We we know that what the pandemic has done to a large extent has forced us to kind of focus inward. We're getting trapped in our own bubbles and we're not necessarily paying attention to what's happening around the world. And for those of us in the United States or in Europe and elsewhere, we might not even realize what's going on in India, the world's second most populous country, critical to understand for the global perspective. So Sumeda, let's just begin at the broad level. What's the pandemic looking like in India? So to begin with, India experienced the pandemic much later compared to uh, most of the other countries uh, in, in the West. And uh, we significantly had massive amount of time to come to this realization. But unfortunately, being the most populous country uh, in South Asia, we've seen so much uh, around the pandemic. It has crippled our healthcare system, which was already quite weak given the enormous population that we have. And it has not just crippled the healthcare system, but also the distribution channels, uh, the economy, which was already experiencing the worst that we've seen in decades kids alongside uh, some of the most communally tensed and fragile atmospheres in the country. And all of these factors uh, have significantly affected how the country has responded to the pandemic and its people who are uh, still enormously grappling with the crisis, even as many countries in the West, including the US, uh, are showing some signs of recovery and uh, flattening the curve, so to say, in many uh, parts of Western Europe and other countries in South Asia as well. So what we're really talking about then is a mismanaged response to the crisis, something that we in the United States can certainly relate to. And secondarily, we're talking about a structural problem in India that exacerbates this crisis. So can you talk a little bit about how the structural dynamics in India's healthcare system really uh, exacerbated this problem? Yeah, so similar to the US, we do not have a national healthcare program, which is robust. So for many of us who do not have insurance, people who uh, come from low income backgrounds, middle uh, economic backgrounds, this pandemic was the ultimate nightmare, given that we do not have a public healthcare system, which was there to support us. To give an idea of what the situation is like for hospitals in India, we did not have uh, ventilators or oxygen, uh, uh, you know, connected beds for majority of the population. We were testing the lowest in South Asia for uh, the population that we have. And uh, similar to the United States, again, that 
it left people in a lurch completely dependent on their own resources uh, having to struggle to find beds having to struggle to find hospitals which would admit patients and more importantly struggling uh, to even get tested so so to speak to give an idea of what really happened in the beginning was that there was of course massive paranoia india sort of implemented the strictest lockdowns that we have seen uh, across the globe to lock down 1.2 billion people was huge but this came at a cost of um, a very crippled uh, healthcare system we very well knew that we did not have the infrastructure or uh, any kinds of means to provide to the people once the pandemic finally unfolds as we are witnessing right now so in the absence of a public healthcare system we've seen private players thrive on this opportunity uh, to make as much money as they can to have as much influence as they could in terms of the government decision making in terms of the kind of price that there will be of the testing of the medicines and lobbies trying to push for their own um, drugs and trying to push for their own solutions which were very ill informed and uh, unscientific to begin with so it was uh, of course mismanagement which was guided uh, and aided by our structural weaknesses and uh, by the failures of our pub- already crippled public healthcare system give us a sense of the geography here if you look at the uh, the map and the infographics it looks like the the pandemic is hitting hardest in the densely populated cities particularly mumbai and and uh, the region around mumbai but potentially also moving now towards the capital give us a sense of how the country regionally is being affected one very interesting trend that we have seen here was the fact that the pandemic was largely urban india is a country which is gripped with a lot of inequality in terms of uh, how it's geographically situated as well we have urban centers such as mumbai which is the financial capital and delhi which is the national capital and these are uh, cities with massive uh, population and how we've seen the pandemic move around is quite interesting because it has moved from urban centers and now reaching small villages and remotest parts of the country the biggest thing that we've seen in terms of the pandemic has been the migration that took place from these big cities to the small villages there were hundreds and thousands and lakhs of workers who were a part uh, and building blocks of these cities of these financial capitals and as the pandemic unfolded they found themselves struggling to survive in the cities starving and not having shelter over their heads so the only alternative the labor and the working class of the city the only alternative that they had was to move back to their villages where they had come from in hopes of finding employment in hopes of finding shelter and better economic resources so we saw we saw we saw um, lines and chains and thousands of workers moving from these big cities sort of uh, trapped in buses walking barefoot they walked thousands and thousands of kilometers every day with many dying on the road hoping just to get back home and just to find themselves in a safe place so that's how the geography of the pandemic actually unfolded in the first couple of months and this as the state sat and watched many of the workers who built our cities completely cripple uh, on the streets of, of the country on the highways of the country uh, many pregnant women who were walking for days they had to give birth on the national highways so it was 
uh, one of the most appalling sights that we've seen in recent times with distressing images with um, with very provocative and distra- uh, and disturbing imagery that we've seen and it also very well sums up how the pandemic actually unfolded there was um, a significant uh, class bias that actually was um, exposed and brought to light um, through the the pandemic and through the virus we saw that the systemic inequalities that already existed in india laid completely exposed for everyone around the world to see it's horrific to even think about so then that raises another question we already know the economic peril that faced the agrarian uh, communities in the rural areas of india before this crisis so now that you have this sort of reverse migration out of the cities back into these communities what is that going to do to the agricultural sector what is that going to do to the small farmer who was already facing a pandemic of suicide when we looking at uh, maharashtra like you mentioned that is where the cap- the financial capital of the country mumbai is and maharashtra has seen the worst drought in years uh, vidarbha region has been uh, the region which has been marked by suicides uh, from the last 20 to, uh, from the last two decades so the last 20 years have been horrific in these regions already farmers across the country including the central region of madhya pradesh they have had to give up everything to basically struggle for survival we've seen higher suicide rates in the country currently and uh, experts are only predicting much worse to come we have uh, the lowest gdp that we've seen and with the reverse migration what we're expecting in the next uh, quarter is uh, much reduced growth um, and what we saw currently was the complete a shutdown of the agricultural supply in some of the regions this strongly reflects on the kind of lockdown that the government had imposed it was uh, extremely sudden for many of these uh, workers who were living in the cities the farmer farmers who were coming to the cities for business they found themselves completely helpless uh, completely drained and completely um, uh, without any resources to support them even for the next few days to come which gave incentive to money lenders in these very small villages which work around a very uh, communal sort of a system where they're heavily dependent on money lenders and once they fail to pay the debt they have no other alternative but to take their own lives many farmers have swallowed pesticides they've hung themselves on trees only because they couldn't pay for one square meal a day or they couldn't uh, bear the burden of looking at their children starving of looking at their fields being completely destroyed their crops being completely wasted that they had spent months and months uh, trying to grow in hopes of making some money for themselves so we've seen this and what we've seen is a complete disruption of the supply chains because of the sudden lockdown that was imposed with the lockdown being imposed uh, the cities witnessed shortages of food supplies of petroleum supplies and uh, they saw a massive spike in uh, prices but that is only one part of the picture where the urban population had to deal with some shortages uh, but much worse was taking place in the villages in the remotest parts of the country where crops remained completely destroyed and families have been broken and uh, scores and scores of farmers are constantly committing suicides every 20 minutes uh, a farmer is committing suicide One of the things we've talked about on this show recently when Arun Gupta was on here talking about his work with the uh migrant farm workers in the United States uh is that there 
is what you might call now a sort of a hidden death toll, hidden outbreaks, and a death toll that uh, is not only not being recorded or publicized, it's not even necessarily being recorded. So that raises the question, is that what we're looking at in India? Are we going to see potentially uh, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people dying, bodies being disposed of, and nobody even recording them as as a statistic? Absolutely. And what we've seen is uh, exactly this. And this is happening uh, in in two dimensions. One part of it is, of course, the deaths which are taking place because of the virus. They are also not being recorded in uh, the state data. And the state has actively chosen uh, certain parameters on the basis of which they are recording this data. So a lot of patients are being, uh, you know, the, the cause of their deaths is being stated as some comorbidity instead of of the coronavirus and uh, many experts here believe that this is being done to sort of uh, control the kind of paranoia and to control the narrative as to how many people are dying what is not being talked about and what is being hidden here again is the deaths of these scores of farmers uh, the deaths of many of uh, workers in this country who have no other um, means uh, for survival, including the migrant workers, including very interestingly the sex workers as well. I have worked with uh, several sex workers during the pandemic to discuss the kind of problems that they are facing. Uh, sex work again remains very invisibilized in India. Uh, however, it is very popular, especially in these uh, urban centers like Mumbai, Kolkata, and Delhi. There are thousands and lakhs of uh, uh, women, uh, trans men, and trans women who engage in sex work. And they found themselves completely, completely helpless uh, during the pandemic and often having to rely on civil society and um, waiting for days to even find themselves with any water or any food or medication. And uh, many of them forced to sort of starve to death or to commit suicide. So these are numbers and these are identities which have remained completely invisibilized in the narrative uh, revolving around deaths. And what about the political narrative? Because here in the United States, our our extreme right wing fascistoid Trump movement is uh, shifting back and forth between complete COVID denialism to simply blaming leftists or whatever it is that they're talking about. But it's mostly a lot of denial. So I, I want to know what about the Modi supporters? What about Hindutva? How is the right uh, reacting to this pandemic? And is the spread of fake news and uh, fake you know uh, information and disinformation that we've seen? leading up to this point, is that exacerbating the situation in India? I would assume it is, but I'd like to know how that's actually working. Yeah. So what we've seen uh, through the beginning of the pandemic was that it started with a lot of uh, pompous speeches, Um, again, an underestimation of what the pandemic is actually like. Uh, But with the imposition of the lockdown, the government and the right wing was trying to show that they're trying to uh, be in control of the situation. But what we've seen with the right wing is a very strong anti-minority sentiment. Like you mentioned in the United States, uh, it is the leftists who are being uh, blamed in some ways or are being targeted. Here in India, it was the Muslim minority, which had already witnessed, for example, here in Delhi, we had a program against the minority community in uh, February this year, uh, 
not long before the pandemic actually unfolded in the country. And um, we saw that here in Delhi, at least there was a congregation which had taken place much before the government advisories had come out to uh, control the spread of coronavirus. And it was the minority group which was being targeted and held completely solely responsible for uh, the crisis and for the community spread of uh, uh, the, the virus. There were hateful messages which were being shared on social media platforms, multiple sites, um, which targeted the community, which again um, uh, gave a lot of impetus to the kind of communal hatred that we've been seeing unfold in the country and uh, uh, and the protests which were taking place right before the pandemic unfolded in the country were actually also targets of a lot of hate uh, around this. As far as the political narrative of the right is concerned, uh, they tried to indulge the general population and distract them by a lot of populist uh, moves such as uh, you know banging of, of the utensils in the balconies or lighting uh, uh, the lamps for our healthcare workers and uh, these steps however they, they were packaged as ones which were trying to boost the morals of our public healthcare workers um, but in reality what was going on in the political narrative is quite interesting a lot of doctors a lot of the medical staff which was speaking up against the government against the right wing tackling of the virus uh, was the target of um, uh, the, the central government as well as the right wing. So they found themselves in a spot where they were being trolled, where they were uh, being abused and uh, threatened uh, if they were speaking up against uh, medical uh, supplies being uh, running short or not having adequate number of protective gear or the kind of uh, atmosphere that was being created at some of the top hospitals where the medical staff was struggling to find itself capable enough uh, to control the virus and to manage the situation. So the right, uh, the right wing found itself targeting all these people including civil society activists um, many of uh, the the doctors who were presidents of res uh, the, the doctors associations they found themselves um, completely vulnerable and being alienated by the right wing and being projected as uh, not national uh, nationalistic people or people having um, faith in uh, the government so this is a, this was uh, this is still uh, unfolding and this was one of the um, the most glaring examples of right-wing targeting that we've seen in recent times. Can you help us understand the organization of the state in India as it pertains to this type of an emergency? I mean, in the United States, we have a federal government, but we also have governments at the state level that do operate to some degree autonomously, although with the tremendous level of dependence upon federal resources. Uh, how, is it work, how does it work in India? Do the different regional governors have any autonomy? To what extent are they responsible for mismanagement? To what extent do they simply defer to the central government? Uh, how does that work? Yeah, so it uh, it follows quite a similar pattern here. We have federal governments. We call them state governments here. So the state governments have quite uh, a lot of autonomy as far as management of some services is concerned. However, majority of control remains with the central government uh, still. So many of the state governments found themselves uh, at the mercy of the center as far as the disbursement of financial resources was concerned, as far as the distribution of protective gear to the hospitals is concerned. 
world. And as far as public distribution system in terms of rations, in terms of providing people with um, financial packages was concerned, many of the governments, including that of Delhi and Mumbai, found themselves uh, struggling constantly with the back and forth in, uh, with the center. Uh, amidst the pandemics, we saw many reports of the chief ministers who uh, run the state government stating that they are appealing consistently to the center uh, for protective gear. However, the central government was not providing them with uh, adequate number of uh, protective gear that they had raised the concerns for. At the same time, we've seen exemplary examples of some of the state governments trying to flatten the curve, one of which being uh, the Kerala government, which is uh, which was the worst affected by the pandemic when the pandemic had actually reached India. In the initial phases of March and April, we saw a significant rise in cases in Kerala. And uh, however, this the, the government, which is a, a left-wing government in the state, they somehow managed to flatten the curve and they did so uh, and it has become a global example as to how a tiny state of Kerala sort of managed to control the pandemic while providing its people with quarantine facilities while trying to ensure that the supply chain was not disrupted and also ensuring that children in the state were getting midday meals, that they were not denied food grains and normal residents of the state received packages which contained groceries, healthcare supplies, etc. So to a certain degree, of course, the states had uh, the control with themselves as to how they dealt with the pandemic. But for a larger part of the country, for many of the governments, they found themselves because of the concentration of population or the limitation of financial resources, they found themselves very dependent on the central government to execute many of the plans that they had. And before we head to the break, I got one additional question for those of us who really don't know much about the Indian system. Uh, what is the, the private healthcare system like in India? And what I mean to say is, say, what percentage of the population has no access to healthcare, to health insurance? What percentage of the population is underinsured and doesn't go to facilities for various reasons, including out-of-pocket expenses? For those of us in the United States, these are all very familiar questions. And perhaps for those of us outside of the United States, alien type questions, but how does it work in India? So in India, of course, a significant amount of population is dependent or because we are not covered, so we are dependent on the private healthcare system. Uh, and the private healthcare system, of course, is one which is, um, in some ways, we can call it uh, discriminatory. And many, uh, so in India, what they tried to do at, some, at a certain point, for those of us who uh, are unfamiliar with the system, is that uh, that uh, the government tried to ensure uh, BPL cards, which is below poverty line cards, to people so that they could they could have some access uh, to uh, healthcare services as well as food services uh, in India. However. Uh, if we look at, uh, you, you know, the kind of real numbers, um, access to healthcare remains very, very limited. We have failed to reach any kind of millennium development goals which are concerned with uh, providing a universal healthcare to its uh, people. And the socioeconomic status has significantly influenced that. The inequalities in the financing uh, financial healthcare system have influenced that. So a large number of tribal population, a large number of those who were called as untouchables, they remain extremely isolated and um, they remain completely cut off 
from uh, at the access to the private healthcare system and bearing the brunt of this crisis uh, is is the population which lives in the rural areas of india so 74% of doctors uh, are in are concentrated only in the urban areas and the rest of the population has access to very very limited uh, percentage of the population has access to the doctors and they do not tend to work in rural areas as well so if we look at the barriers uh, there 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 are enormous barriers in terms of technological resources in terms of mobility in terms of financial resources that means that majority of the people do not have access to private health care and public health care system at the same time has also uh, in in some ways failed to provide a complete coverage of service especially when we look at a crisis like corona which is um, extremely new which uh, has thrown uh, off well you know even one of the world's best healthcare systems into a tizzy for a country like india this was an enormous challenge altogether to ensure that healthcare reaches every single one of uh, the people in the country let's take a quick break on the other side of the break i want to talk to sameeda a little bit about her personal experience with the system in india that she's just gone through and experience with this pandemic and what that actually looked like what the personal side of this actually looks and feels like so stick with us on the other side of the break we'll continue with sameeda paul you're listening to counterpunch radio we'll be right back life is a debt that must someday be The system is sick The 
And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio chatting with Sameda Paul. You should be following her on social media. Follow her on Facebook. Also follow the news site newsclick.in. That is an important site, uh, English language out of India with a lot of very, very good insights. And of course, Sameda is now officially a friend of this show. So Sumeda, I want to ask you a little bit about your personal experience with the system. What have you just gone through with your mother? What have you experienced? What have you witnessed in the midst of this historic pandemic? So it's been an incredibly uh, excruciating experience for all of us collectively as a population. But for some of us, uh, the pandemic has been more real and more, um, uh, you know, in the face uh, compared to some other people who've been lucky enough to just stay locked indoors and to be able to stay healthy. So amidst the crisis, I found that my mother is struggling with a kidney condition, which is a chronic kidney disease, which meant that her kidneys were failing. And we had to start the procedure of dialysis uh, to clean out the toxins from her blood. And this coincided with the beginning of the pandemic. And as soon as we started the procedure, the constant visits to the doctors and uh, in and out of the hospital meant that uh, her immune system was significantly weakened and on one of uh, the days she found herself uh, tested positive for the the coronavirus. And this happened, um, I, I would like to share with the listeners that I come from a background where I could um, afford a private healthcare uh, a hospital and I could manage to get herself uh, to get herself and myself uh, tested. But it came with its own set of barriers. The testing costs are excruciatingly high in India. They are um, priced at 4,000, over 4,000 rupees, which is an enormous sum of money for many in the country. And many of the people could not afford to get tested in the first place, despite the fact that they had symptoms. And the government, uh, uh, you know, guidelines made it significantly difficult for a massive chunk of the population to get tested uh, for the virus. This, as the government issued some guidelines, which stated that those who had severe symptoms or uh, or, or experienced uh, difficulties with their health only could get tested. So many of the people who um, remained asymptomatic did not even know that they had the virus or that they could be possibly carriers of the virus. Uh, at their homes or if they ventured out out of their houses. So uh, it was incredibly difficult for me to get my mother tested. And the only reason that she was actually tested was the fact that she was one of the thousands and lakhs of patients getting dialysis on a daily basis in the country. For people with comorbidities, the crisis has been uh, made worse in India because of the healthcare system. Uh, Many people who receive chemotherapy in the country, many people who receive dialysis facilities in the country, they had to get tested for the virus every week, which meant that they were paying 4,000, over 4,000 rupees every time that they were trying to avail these services at the hospital, which is a significant amount of the population. So even at one dialysis unit, there were hundreds of patients paying private hospital facilities over 4,000 rupees every time and every week, which was enormous amount of money. And many people who are availing these facilities, these essential life-saving facilities, such as chemotherapy, such as dialysis, they could not afford to get tested every week. And it has been a harrowing experience to see people lined up 
for hours and hours just waiting to get themselves tested only so that they could afford uh, and could actually be permitted to avail these very very essential life saving services for me the constant visits uh, at the hospital have been absolutely um, horrific i have had to stand in multiple queues visiting multiple uh, counters trying to only get my mother tested and after that the process of availing these services has been incredibly difficult i can only imagine what it's like for those who do not have the same resources to be able to drive down to the hospitals amidst the lack of any public transport to be able to pay the enormous sum of money that the hospitals have demanded for these life saving services I'd like to ask a little bit about the impact on children now. What is the what is being discussed in India obviously because of the sheer scale of the population in India. You're talking about an an astronomical number of children who are potentially locked up at home, but some of them in very bad homes and bad situations, many of many of which uh may not be able to go back to school considering what might be coming in the, in the, you know, in the next few months. How does the question of children education school playing in this in 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 India because right now in the United States most most children are out of school but there is a looming crisis coming in September and nobody's got an answer for it so what's going on in India of course it's an enormous challenge and in india it becomes specifically difficult because a lot of the children in this country remain malnourished so the outbreak of uh, the virus has brought numerous changes one of them especially concerning children has been ensuring food and nutrition to these children because many of them had their parents who were working as daily wagers they lived hand to mouth and after they lost their jobs a significant population of the children in the country they were left without any food on their tables which was essential for them and their growth many of them have missed uh, the doses of very important uh, you know um, life saving immunity uh, drugs such as polio and the hepatitis b drug and it has been incredibly difficult for children to avail uh, these services and looking at the maternal health care crisis as well is it's very intrinsically connected to how uh, the children are currently uh, witnessing the crisis because many of the women who are pregnant uh, they did not get access to the opds they could not go to the hospitals for their regular checkups they uh, many of the pregnant women did not get uh, what is mandated as you know um, essential meals or uh, which was supposed to be provided by the government to these women especially among the lower strata of the population which is a majority of the population in india who could not afford food who could not afford healthcare and the impact of the lockdown on on the mental health of the children has been enormous because schools have been shut down and uh, what the schools did in india was again we are very, very unsure as to when the schools will reopen because uh, the crisis is still unfolding we haven't uh, as experts predict reached uh, the peak of the crisis yet here in india so that means a very very unpredictable future for a majority of children and students here in the country and one of the worst effects again which is very deep deeply rooted in the inequality of digital inequality in the country is the provision of online classes for uh, students here so many of the schools in the country majority of them uh, have resorted to online education something which was 
which is unimaginable for uh, quite a lot of students in the country who live in remote parts of the country, who were dependent on schools for their uh, meals in the afternoon, who were, uh, who were dependent on schools for uniforms, for clothes, for stationery, and including um, uh, basic access to water and other resources such as medication was being provided by these government schools. And with schools shut down, the midday meals, which were lifesavers for majority of these children, have, have gone completely missed. They have been completely missed by these students. And uh, a lot of these children are forced now to sort of figure out as to how they are supposed to access education because children in this country do not have access to the internet. When your parents are working as daily wage workers, when they do not have food in their, on their tables, it's absolutely unimaginable to expect students to resort to an online system of education, which has led them completely alienated and isolated um, again, so in, in my um, uh, knowledge, in what I've seen on the ground, I have personally reported on some of these cases. Uh, one of the cases that I reported about was uh, of a woman who was struggling to pay her rent because their, their income had been completely cut off. And then she was struggling uh, to pay the fee of the schools for her three children. And the fee remained enormous. The children could not afford to uh, jump on a computer or a phone uh, with an active internet connection to be able to um, access any education. And what the family witnessed was a series of um, completely uh, heartbreaking instances where they were being asked by the school to uh, pay the fee regularly. They were being pressured by the authorities that their student, uh, their children will be thrown out of the schools if they could not manage to pay the fee. And on the other hand, they did not have the resources to uh, provide for their children to be able to afford any kind of uh, online education. It was only after the attempts which were made by activists in the city, by the, the local activists and the pressures from the local community that the schools were forced to keep the students in the school and to not uh, rusticate them or suspend uh, their admission. So, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are thousands and thousands of stories like this where students have been thrown out of schools because they have been, they've not been able to pay the fee, where they have not been able to afford uh, the online education system. So they are uh, rendered completely helpless and they will now, once the schools reopen and God knows when that will happen, so they don't know what the future holds for them because they don't know if they will be able to go back to school. They don't know if their parents will be able to afford their education or not. One of the things that we've all experienced, and you've already mentioned it, is the psychological impact of lockdown, lockdown over a long period of time. This is something that most of us have thankfully never really had to deal with up until now. But there is a part of India that is absolutely dealing with that and has been dealing with it for more than a year now. I'm, of course, talking about Kashmir, the uh, Indian authorities, the, the move that they made in 2019 to basically upend what had been the status quo left Kashmir basically in a state of permanent lockdown. So I guess what I want to ask you now is what's the latest in Kashmir? How has the pandemic inspired lockdown become essentially an extension of a year long lockdown? And what's the overall impact there? So we're reaching, uh, we're marking the anniversary of uh, the removal of Article 370, which provided the state with an autonomous status uh, on August 5th. So it's been a year, like you correctly pointed out, and it has been the pandemic and coronavirus has exas has, has uh, added 
to what was um, the state of affairs in Kashmir. So it was a human rights lockdown. It was a complete lockdown on suspension of the internet services in the state. Um, regular services were completely disrupted and the pandemic has only added to the problem of the people. It has given the state um, an, an opportunity as many of the people here and in the state are saying that it has given the state an opportunity to capitalize on the pandemic to suppress human rights in the state further without any internet facilities without the uh, without uh, any connection with the rest of the country earlier many of us still had access to the state but because of travel restrictions because of the lockdown this has uh, ensured that the state remains completely silenced that it remains completely um, under a blanket ban of any uh, proper adequate media coverage or any um, adequate information as to what is really going on in the state. What we are now witnessing, uh, of course, very recently, yesterday, we've seen uh, very, very disturbing images of a child who is barely three years old has been, um, you know, the disturbing images show that the child has been sitting on a dead corpse of his own grandfather who has been shot down by security forces. This has been the latest that we've been seeing in the state. So lots, so there is a lot of debate about how um, the encounter and the shooting actually unfolded, but it gives one a very clear glimpse of the kind of excesses which are taking place in the state, which are not new to anybody in Kashmir. The lockdown is not new to anybody in Kashmir. And uh, the excesses that the state is witnessing uh, is only uh, being multiplied by uh, the lockdown. And uh, what the state did as an opportunity, or you could say under the garb of the lockdown, was that they have managed to implement some very specific policy changes in the state, which includes the domicile laws. So now people who do not uh, belong to the state, who are not born in the state, uh, can now own property in the state, which means that there is a very clear uh, attempt which is being made to change the demographics of the state. Uh, and this has happened under, uh, this has happened as the world is witnessing a pandemic um, and everybody is locked down. There can be no protests in the state. There cannot be a movement which can be created uh, in, in its uh, truest form currently because of the restrictions that we are facing. So the state has sort of used this um, uh, to change the domicile laws. We're also seeing significant changes being made to the demography in terms of who can purchase land in the state, in terms of uh, the, the clearances that the forest department is giving for many private players to come in and invest in the state. These developments were already on the cards as Article 370 was revoked, but now we have seen a complete um, hastening and uh, fastening of this process. This, as not many uh, in the outside world are able to hear about this or discuss this enough or emphasize about this enough. And as the media, mainstream media uh, in India remains completely consumed with the news of the coronavirus, these very, very significant uh, developments in the state are being are being missed out completely and uh, the the kind of magnitude of these developments is not being discussed adequately uh, in the state 
and of course the supply chains which were already damaged the supply uh, of food electricity and water has remained uh, completely completely uh, disrupted in the state it was people and the residents of the state were already witnessing a very harsh time because they had lost access to uh, their water resources to electricity and because of the lockdown because of the virus uh, this has only become much worse and uh, recently because of the growing political tension between india and china again parts of kashmir and of course ladakh um, have become um, uh, you know the, the, their tensions have multiplied because uh, many of the residents of the of, of the valley are now being asked to stock up on uh, liquid uh, the, the petroleum gas and other resources which has caused further panic uh, in people who are already witnessing a distressing phase uh, for decades now and uh, of course uh, is a phase which has been made uh, much worse by the revocation of article 370 i was going to ask you about the incident uh, with the uh, indian indian military and chinese military in that skirmish recently and uh, specifically how that was reacted to in india how has the right the supporters of modi how have they well, have they capitalized on that? Have they used that for their own propaganda purposes? Obviously, in the United States, anti-China sentiment is running very high. The Wuhan flu and all of these racist tropes that the uh, that Trump and his people have been using have in many ways seeped into much of the mainstream discourse so that people who had no significant anti-Chinese uh, or at least overt anti-Chinese bias a couple of years ago are now, you know, ready to go to war with the Chinese. So I guess my question is, to what extent is China being used as a propaganda weapon? How is that impacting the conversation on the right? Absolutely. So in India as well, we see that anti-China sentiment is running extremely high. The tensions have, of course, added to uh, to the kind of sentiment that we were already witnessing because of coronavirus. There was a lot of racial xenophobia uh, that was being strengthened because of uh, a virus which came from China. China was being blamed here as well. And now with the skirmishes that we saw in the Galban Valley uh, with China, they have sort of given more more impetus uh, to this anti-China sentiment to flare up nationalistic emotions, to reinforce the faith in the right-wing government. At the same time, uh, it has it has uh, you know spread to common people, including children. We've been uh, on social media. There are uh, videos of children breaking Chinese products as an expression of their love for their country. Children um, as young as ten year olds are seen throwing Chinese products out of their houses, breaking them down with hammers, and declaring their love for India and the passion for the country by completely disregarding Chinese products. One thing which is very interesting, which is happened with uh, with in, in india with respect to uh, the xenophobia in india and the growing uh, racism in, in the country and uh, an anti-minority sentiment as well there are parallels here so uh, initially when the pandemic had started because of the strong anti-muslim sentiment uh, people were encouraging uh, the the messaging that the right wing was trying to put out was to completely um, economically boycott the muslims so a lot of muslim traders vegetable sellers vendors they witnessed something extremely similar 
there were cards in some of the countries which were being uh, uh, put out uh, there were specific identity uh, uh, markings which were being put out to show that these are muslim vendors who do not buy things from muslim vendors because they are the ones spreading coronavirus and uh, at the same time now um, the narrative has uh, shifted to china in exactly the same way the narrative finds itself being completely repeated with china where they say that of course uh, you know china has been responsible for coronavirus as well at the same time it is time for india to show that india is a strong country that we are powerful and of course uh, this is going to have very strong racial implications here as well it has triggered anxieties in many of the people who live in the northeastern states uh, to be harassed and abused because they apparently look like those who belong to china so it is it is becoming an impetus of abuse and uh, for the spread of xenophobia that's what we're witnessing here and of course we saw very recently this week india decided to ban uh, 59 of chinese uh, applications which were being very widely used in the country something which the right wing has hoped to sort of capitalize on in in order to ensure that that these platforms were discontinued in order to show the prowess of india however many people as and including myself as we understand it it is it is uh, not benefited um, uh, you know significantly uh, in in uh, the display of any kind of nationalism but that is what the right wing is attempting to currently do slowly but surely they're trying to capitalize on this narrative to deviate attention from the failures of the state in providing healthcare to its citizens in providing and ensuring uh, safety and uh, food for all the narrative is completely being uh, shifted to a more um, uh, questions of who is a nationalist how much do we hate the chinese people and how many um, you know things we can boycott or break to ensure that the chinese economy um, comes down so th- this is the kind of narrative that is slowly picking up pace in the country and it's an extremely dangerous trend that we are witnessing right now One of the interesting things we're witnessing in the United States is the poll numbers for Donald Trump. Donald Trump who uh any racist act, any outlandish thing he might have said, any uh conspiracy exposed and blundering that he has done to this point has really not affected his political fortunes to any real extent. And yet here we are and we have a pandemic and the mismanagement of the pandemic is beginning to show itself in his poll numbers and is and in his uh, uh bid for re-election. uh later this year Trump is at least at the moment suffering badly against his uh his rival uh in head to head polls much of that being attributed to the mismanagement of this crisis so uh not making any prediction about what's going to happen in the United States but I'm just curious the mismanagement by the Modi government has that had any translation politically is there any chance that uh he and his movement might be on slightly shakier ground today than they were several months ago um absolutely but it's it's too soon to predict that here because we are not witnessing where there is no upcoming election that we are seeing in the state um but at the same time 
it is looking shakier compared to what it was earlier the the mismanagement is not being i wouldn't say that it's being directly attributed to the modi government but it is exposing significant gaps in policy implementation as well as um the miscalculations by the modi government the kind of suppression of dissent uh, against the modi government is being uh, exposed uh, very very clearly and um, as i pointed out earlier as well right before the pandemic unfolded india was witnessing a very strong uh, movement against the government and its policies to implement the citizenship amendment act which was oriented towards um, de enfranchising disenfranchising a majority of the muslim uh, population by ensuring those who were hindus who were persecuted in uh, in, in other countries could come to india and uh, get a citizenship but this move was being looked at as one which was racially excluding the muslim people disenfranchising them and uh, completely exposing uh, the fact that uh, the, the muslims in the country were second class citizens so what we are witnessing is uh, that the pandemic has exposed a lot of inadequacies of the modi government not not just in terms of the mismanagement of the pandemic but also in terms of suppression of freedom in terms of providing its citizens with what they had uh, promised uh, to the people which is um, development which is food which is safety and healthcare and they're completely failing on economic grounds uh, the pandemic has not just been a healthcare um, failure by the government but also an economic failure something which is being more and more uh, which is which is finding its place in uh, the common narrative quite a lot now the fact that traders businessmen migrant workers are all facing uh, the brunt of the mismanagement of the modi government another very interesting thing that we've seen in terms of uh, the perception of the government is also the fact that some of the country's human rights activists remained locked up in jails a pregnant woman who was a 27 year old activist from uh, one of the premier institutes of india jamia milia islamia is still uh, was languishing in jail amidst the pandemic and has now been granted bail on uh, human rights grounds only because she is pregnant so we've been seeing the fact that common people are beginning to understand uh, the priorities of the government and they are questioning the priorities of the government during the pandemic be it uh, the expansion of the cabinet in uh, one of the states of india which is madhya pradesh be it the jailing uh, the be it putting the activists behind the bars as many of the countries around the globe are uh, emptying their jails are ensuring that those who um, should not be in jail are no longer there because of the pandemic and how jails are centers of uh, the transmission of the virus uh, at the same time modi government is enforcing a stricter crackdown on uh, human rights and is enforcing a stricter crackdown on those who were speaking up against the government and the suspension of uh, freedom in india and specifically media freedom in india as well they are witnessing a very very furious backlash from the state at this point in time uh, and many are now questioning what are the priorities of the government does the government really care about its people or is the government very very invested in furthering its agenda and uh, in 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 uh, continuing the propagation of the right wing agenda
Final question for you. Here in the United States, amid the pandemic and amid the lockdowns, we've seen the most significant uh, political uprising in recent memory, certainly in many of our lifetimes. Uh, The Floyd Rebellion, the Black Lives Matter movement, the way that it has taken over the national conversation and national consciousness. I don't know whether or not that would have happened in the same way had we not been in the middle of this pandemic with lockdowns and so forth. So my question question is, what's going on in India. Can you tell me about the left? Can you tell me, I mean, you have an organized communist party, you have a very, very vibrant left in India, the largest in the world. We've seen general strikes, massive demonstrations in the months that led up to the coronavirus pandemic. So where is the left and the social movements, the labor unions and so forth? Is there any kind of a uh, response? Is the lockdown preventing that? What is your read on the left and the social movements in the streets? Of course, the pandemic in the initial phase had, uh, you know, taken everybody by a surprise, the kind of lockdown that we saw and the reverse migration trend. Uh, But this has not in any way deterred uh, or prevented any of uh, the social movements from uh, exhibiting their power and their strength. What we're seeing is the fact that that in India, of course, we're not witnessing an all-out uh, revolution currently or protests, ma- mass protests, as you've seen in the United States. Uh, but at the same time, there is a very organized and carefully strategized, creatively strategized movement that is now um, finding its strength. And this is happening through very, very local community-based agitations. People have found new and creative ways to assert the fact that uh, they they will not, um, you know, uh, make peace with the moves of the government. People have taken to their balconies, uh, holding placards, sharing messaging on social media uh, here in urban cities. While in remote parts of the country, the farmers, again, who are struggling with farmer suicides in debt uh, and debt, they are also asserting slowly but surely the fact that uh, that they will not make peace. Uh, with the apathetic approach of the government. So we are seeing uh, an upward trend in how social movements are again uh, reorganizing themselves, finding very, very creative ways Tribal uh, agitations are also picking up pace in the country because uh, the tribal population remains considerably uh, alienated and isolated from the discourse in the mainstream. So they are finding themselves um, in in uh, 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 the most important opportunity to use this pandemic to uh, highlight their concerns uh, as far as the forest rights movement is concerned. We saw the biggest, uh, uh, you know, social media sort of protest currently with respect to the um, environmental rights in the country because the government tried to implement um, uh, an environmental clearance notification, which is the EIA notification, to provide larger uh, corporate groups with easier access to environmental clearances, which meant that many of the tribals, their environment uh, and the local population could be dispersed much quicker, much faster. Their rights could be very easily trampled with. So we saw Twitter trends, Instagram trends, storms and uh, emailing uh, the government representatives. And it actually worked out the uh, the, the extension uh, to hear suggestions and to uh, hear criticisms from the people has now been given, aiding to the large movement that we saw on social media. Again, it remains very uh, limited to those 
those who have the digital resources to be able to pull off these kind of protests. But uh, movements are finding their strength again. Um, they are regaining uh, momentum. They are regaining uh, the kind of organization that had gone missing initially because of the initial shock of the pandemic. So what I'm suggesting is that in the next couple of weeks and months from now, um, we can see a resurgence in ways protests and uh, dissent has been registered in the country, which can be very crucial for a country like India. Uh, and of course, the country is left. It remains uh, very, very symbolic because uh, this is something that has never happened in the country before. It remains absolutely unprecedented in ways people are now finding creative ways to register uh, their dissent and their voices. It's fascinating. Certainly something that we're going to have to pay attention to in the coming weeks and months. We're going to leave it there. Sumeda Paul, thank you so much for coming back to Counterpunch. You guys got to follow Sumeda, follow NewsClick. That is an excellent resource. And uh, uh, hook up with Sumeda on social media if possible. Sumeda, thanks again for coming on Counterpunch and talking to us. Thank you so much, Eric. It's always a pleasure. Listeners, thank you as always for your continued support, for listening, and we will talk again next week.